Welcome to Black Diplomats, the dopest foreign policy podcast in America. I'm your host, Terrell Jermaine Starr. Today's show will explore the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So I'm pretty sure that a lot of folks have maybe seen this on the news or across social media. So I'm going to help break down what's happening according to Politico. And again, I'm, re- I'm quoting from Politico. On the morning of September 27th, Azerbaijan launched air and artillery attacks on Nagorno-Karabakh, while Baku says it was conducting a counteroffensive in response to military provocation. As the fighting turned deadly, Armenia declared martial law and general mobilization. Azerbaijan announced a state of war in some regions. The death toll fluctuates and is in dispute, but here's what we know so far. According to the news outlet Deutsche Welle, as of October 25th, Armenia's military death toll is 974. Some 37 civilians have also been killed in fighting between Azeri and Armenian forces. Azerbaijan has not disclosed its military casualties due to censorship under the martial law that applies in the region. But Baku did say 65 civilians were killed and more than 300 wounded on their side. Helping us to break all of this down is Angelica Zarkayan, a journalist at CivilNet who is reporting directly from the conflict, which is also, uh, the area is also her home where she grew up. And so she's going to give us firsthand analysis about what's going on. Aleka, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for the introduction. You've been out there. So based on your reporting, can you just give us an update about what's going on and what's the current state of the uh, of the conflict? Yeah, while you were talking, there was another explosion <laughs> right now. So where are you? Tell us exactly where you are. Uh, well, in a city, I, I mean, I could hear the sound. <laughs> so um, this doesn't stop. On uh, September 27th, we woke up because of the sound of bombs, of explosions. So um, there, there were UAVs or drones, and they, like, um, that one that killed themselves, killed themselves by killing others as well. <laughs> so they explode themselves. So um, that was the first time, um, I mean, I'm living in this conflict zone all my life and I'm 26, but that was the first time I could hear these sounds um, because they never attacked Stepanakert itself. Um, Stepanakert was attacked. Stepanakert, by the way, is the capital city of Nagorno-Karabakh. So mostly these 30 years, the conflict was in a borderline and in borders, some some border cities and villages, but not in Stepanakert exactly. So we couldn't believe that it's war because it was unexpected. Um, it was Sunday. I I thought I had a great plans on Sunday and we were like all in our everyday lives. Mm, but then suddenly we heard this and we realized that the war started and Azerbaijan launched a large-scale war against Artsakh. So um, 
according to um, there was um, something like um, that why Azerbaijan says that Armenia started or, or the Artsakh started or and Artsakh states is Azerbaijan started. I don't even discuss this version because that if anyone has a piece of logic, they would understand that Artsakh has no intention to start anything. I mean, in this case, in um, Nagorno-Karabakh case, we were the lead the winners um, and we had nothing to ask for. We had no intention to, to, to start anything. We had Karabakh, we have Karabakh and we, we live our lives and okay, nobody recognized it, but fine, <laughs> let them not recognize we live our lives and we had no intention to start anything. So if anyone has a piece of logic, they would probably understand that it's Azerbaijan who started because Azerbaijan claims about territories, claims about even Ar Armenian capital city Yerevan and they, they, I mean, all the time having these aggressive speeches everywhere. So um, this is how it started and it's uh, the day nine, uh, 29 uh, today that we are still in this war on 18 uh, October, October 18 there was kind of a humanitarian ceasefire announced uh, that um, to, to exchange the, the, the bodies or uh, I don't know, some hostages or something like this, but it didn't work and doesn't work. And till two days ago, it worked only in Stepanakert, but they bombarded Stepanakert again yesterday and the day before. So now the humanitarian ceasefire doesn't work. So if we shortly understand what happens here, so on September 27, the war started and it never ends, uh, ended and it still goes on. Again, for a lot of folks who are are listening to this, I want to give them an idea where this is. So, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm looking at the map. So, Nagorno-Karabakh is landlocked and it's in Azerbaijani uh, territory, correct? In Google Map, you mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah, in Google Map, yes. <laughs> so, talk about that because I'm looking at, I'm trying to figure out exactly where, where it is. Yeah, okay. So, if... I don't know who will listen to this if people have an idea what is Nagorno-Karabakh or no. Uh, I will, I will, I wouldn't go like to go deep into history, but I will just say some facts so people understand what it is, how it started and why uh, there is a conflict. Um, so first, Nagorno means mountainous. Uh, so you can simply say mountainous Karabakh. <laughs> um, and uh, you can just say Karabakh as well. And why Nagorno? Because uh, it, it's a Russian word um, and it's a really mountainous place. It's a really beautiful mountainous place. Like, I don't know, it's like, a, it's like Switzerland um, uh, with really fresh and clean air and uh, forests and it, it's a wonderful place. Yeah, so um, Nagorno-Karabakh, or like how we call it, Artsakh, Artsakh was uh, one of the states of Armenia all their, like all its in all its history. So, I mean, we have churches in Artsakh from 4th century, for, from 10th, from 14th century. So there are so many old churches uh, here. And even the Armenian alphabet, uh, which was written in 5th century, was written in Artsakh. So that's the history that, know, that everybody knows. Uh, and um, it's an Armenian uh, land, which was like before 90, before the beginning of 20th century, 
there was Russian Empire. Just imagine Russian Empire and this all land like where now are Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, this South Caucasus. Um, they were all part of Russian Empire. After Russian Empire was collapsed, these lands they were supposed to make borders as they gave independence to these states. So they were they had to make some borders and. Mm, in uh, in one day they decided that Karabakh goes to Armenia because of the ethnic because of the ethnical and uh, like this historical stuff uh, because people are living there were Armenians or mostly Armenians um, and the next day exactly the next day um, uh, Lenin and Stalin they they thought they they sat and said okay we are giving Karabakh to Azerbaijan because at that moment. Azerbaijan was very important for Soviet Union because of the oil, because of uh, Azerbaijan was uh, because they were um, Muslims and um, Stalin and Lenin, the Soviet people, they hoped to um, make the Soviet stuff into Muslim countries as well. So that's why Azerbaijan was very important for them at that moment. And that's why they gave uh, Karabakh and another region of Armenia, Nakhichevan, both, they gave it to Azerbaijan. So they just took and gave it, you know. No, they didn't. In, uh, they didn't take Karabakh. They didn't defeat Karabakh. Um, like they, they just took and gave it. Of course, people didn't like it, and they said that um, because of some economical issues uh, and so on. But people didn't like it um, because they were like mostly Armenians, and they wanted to be with Armenia. That's that's I guess normal. And um, after uh, it was like in in 1920s till 1988 people were writing um uh, this uh, letters they were gathering signatures and sending to soviet union please give us a chance to reunion with armenia we are armenians we want to be with armenia because azerbaijan was discriminating armenians in an armenian land um for example Armenian history was taken out as a subject from the schools and Azerbaijani history was um, given instead. Uh, Armenians, uh, Armenia is the first Christian country in the world, uh, officially Christian country in the world. And um, Karabakhian Armenians are very connected to, the, to religion, to Christianity and to churches. Um, I mean, here you can find so many churches. If you visit you, in every village, in every uh, step, you, you can find villages and uh, um, uh, churches. And um, uh, they, we were not allowed to go to church. Like, we were not allowed to pray. Like, we were so much discriminated that people couldn't stand and, and couldn't handle it anymore. In 1988, people went out to because there was a new rule of soviet union that countries have a right for self-determination um the, the people have a right for self-determination and they can say okay we want to be this and we want to be independent and with, with the same way armenia azerbaijan georgia announced their independence the same way karabakh uh, karabakhian people went out and said we want to be a part of armenia and they didn't mean to fight or to have a war they just went out for, for peaceful demonstrations to ask for reunion, uh, for um, a right to self-determination, uh, right of self-determination. So that was the only thing people wanted. Nobody wanted to kill Azerbaijanis or to, to have a war. And then, um, of course, Azerbaijan didn't want to lose Karabakh. And then they started um, 
killing people and there was operation called so or ring where they when they killed many many people so the war started in 1991 like big war and it ended in 1994 with a ceasefire um and as a result karabakh and armenians got this we said okay if you want to give us unification with armenia then we want independence so let us to be independent and then we will decide that we want to go to Armenia or we want to stay independent. So from this, um, this issue of uh, not recognized independent country in Nagorno-Karabakh kind of um, came <laughs> to the world. <laughs> um, and since that day, we have been living in this conflict um, in a line of contact. Uh, we got, we got this, you know, like we are independent. Okay, we in Google Map recognize us as a part of Azerbaijan, but we are independent. We have Armenian passports, we have Armenian schools, we speak Armenian, we go to church. So we, we live the life we want. Uh, only in Google Map we are uh, written as Azerbaijan. So, but that, that doesn't matter. But Azerbaijan didn't um, accept it throughout these years. And they are talking about um some right that they have keep their land and so on um and that's why during all these years there was all the time war in line of conduct and uh, there was in 1916 um, in 2016 there was again a four-day war what we call april war uh but it was four day officially like but one month two months uh but it was very easy compared to this one uh, so in four years they started this large-scale war, war again that's why karabakhian people if i have to explain shortly uh, there are armenians who wanted to have their right for self-determination so this is war people wanted nobody wanted to to be in a war or to be in a conflict they wanted just to be with mother armenia as a part of armenia and as an ethnically armenians and um, as a part as an armenian land with very very um long roots so the majority of the people who are there are armenian yeah uh, right now the uh, like everyone <laughs> all the population is i mean like 90 percent or 90 something but um when this everything started in 1984 uh, 1988 then um armenia still was still armenians were still majority so there were like 25 nearly 25 percent azerbaijanis like throughout all that years of soviet union they made people to come to um karabakh from azerbaijan the government to make more azerbaijan but still they were like 25 percent not like majority we are still majority this is reminding me of abkhazia in georgia as well as south ossetia as well as transnester which is in moldova right so you have a lot of what i call divide and conquer that's a layover from the soviet period and you're left with and so the people are left with the pieces of how to best deal with this divide and conquer uh soviet so you know so, so soviet meddling i would say yeah i think that um, okay the conflicts are different like the basis of conflict the the history of conflict they are different but still they are like yeah. it's like um kind of something similar yeah we are in a similar situation like unrecognized independent country <laughs> right now you you've been out in, in the field covering things so just tell us about what 
you are what you, what you're seeing with your reporting because your timeline shows images from from hospitals from people who've been injured for people who are uh seeking shelter from 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 this war so just talk to us about the people you have been interviewing thank you for this question because um i don't like i i studied political science but i don't really like to talk about politics so mostly i love <laughs> what i really love to do in in this period especially is human stories um, and talking to people and making people stories people are scared but people are staying in Stepanak Yard and other regions so um, they are bombarding every day but people are not are refusing to go somewhere safe there are some people who went somewhere like a safer place like other cities in Armenia or the capital of Armenia to Yerevan but um, they, they went there because they had no other chance they had no other choice and uh, they they didn't like leave they they went with a big desire and hope that they are coming back soon so nobody thinking that it can last longer everybody think oh it has to be done in these two days two two three days because we have um, no power anymore to stay far from our homeland like like this and um, but people are scared um can like can you imagine they they are living in the shelters for nine the 29 days and every family has uh, a man in a in a front line like my brother is in a front line my boyfriend is in a boy front line and my father is soon going to join um, the the group of volunteers to go to the front line uh it, it's and it's only me like if you uh, if you see any um family everyone has someone in the front line so it is very emotional people are very um worried about you know their fathers, sons, husbands. Um, when, when they call us, we just take the phone and say, are you fine? Like all we, we need is just to hear their voice. We don't even ask, where are you? What are you doing? It's not safe to talk even by phone, but I mean, only knowing that they are alive, that's the, the, the main thing. Uh, so, but anyway, people are very scared. They are children and the schools are not working. Uh, so children are, home so these children have a right to, for education but because of the war they, they cannot use the, their right for to get education i mean that's crazy and that's unfair really unfair there is war they are bombing nothing works no schools no infrastructures nothing works because of the the bombings because you can go out try to walk to school and then there is a bomb and you are dying so that's why everything is closed shops pharmacies like there are maybe one or two shops or pharmacies open but mostly they are closed and children cannot go to school because of that because there are no schools to go anymore that's why they are kind of discriminated in the, by the world <laughs> because they are they are not allowed they they have no possibility to study and that's that's really unfair as a journalist who is recording all of these stories how difficult is it for you to do all of this when you have your boyfriend and your brother and people you know who are involved what 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 type of strength 
or what ways are you taking care of yourself as you're sharing all this and very important news about what's happening in your homeland with the rest of the world? I, I think the only way I'm helping myself is the work. Because when you really, really deeply realize what happens around you, you can just go insane because it's really crazy. If you really deeply realize, that's why, I don't know, I try to not to go deep, at least now, because now I'm not allowed to break down because now uh, there are people who depend on me and I have no right to be, um, to be weak. That's why we take all our courage and we gather all our power um, to, together and just try to, just try to live, try to not break down. Okay, so the Nagorno-Karabakh clashes, they have the potential to draw Russia and Turkey, who's a NATO member, by the way, uh, into this conflict. And so... Another dynamic with all of this is that Turkey and Armenia have had tense relations that are directly linked to the fact that Turkey refuses to recognize the 1950, the 1915 Armenian genocide. So can you tell us more about the implications of Russia and Turkey in this, particularly with the Armenian genocide of 1915 looming above this? Um, yeah, what happens now is another try for another genocide in Artsakh. That I would say. We have Russia, which is part of OAC in Minsk group, which is supposed to make this something resolutional in Artsakh and according to Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Actually, I don't think they are doing anything <laughs> between us. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, we have Russia also as a part of this, um, I don't know, another agreement with Armenia that they are, they are defending Armenia if there is war. Nothing about Arta, but anything about Armenia. Still, uh, we don't really get uh, serious support from Russia. Um, but uh, there, are, there is Turkey which is totally, totally supporting Azerbaijan with um, weapons, with people like soldiers and army, with everything, everything you can imagine. Um, and we had, yeah, we don't have the best relations with Turkey already for 105 years uh, after the genocide. Um, and plus to this, uh, this situation with Nagorno-Karabakh with Azerbaijan. And now they are both, like Turkey, a great big country of a uh, member of NATO against, and, and plus this um, Azerbaijan and oil, against this small mountainous Karabakh. <laughs> I'm not going to say how unfair it is. I would just say that it's another try for another Armenian genocide because they are not going to... Um, if they want really Karabakh, they have to make another genocide to get it. Because people will not leave it. People, people live here. It's their homes. You know, it's, it's so um, something really deep. I don't know if people can understand it or no, but it's something really deep. They have really deep connection with their roots. So if, uh, I think that's another try. And um, I believe that if 
the international society doesn't stop it on time, it can become the third world war. Because there are not only Turkey and Russia, there are, this is also USA or Iran and Israel. And I mean, there are so many countries into this uh, somehow that it can really become the third world war if the international society doesn't stop it. Right. I wanted to talk about that because I don't think many people who are listening to this understand how world wars get started. Oftentimes it starts with a smaller conflict that depending on which borders the conflict started, it starts regionally, then it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Then it becomes a, a, a war. On, on global you know global proportions immediate you know the fact that America for example is this the most powerful member of NATO you have a NATO member in Turkey that's supporting Azerbaijan that seems it's a major imbalance of power right it's a major disadvantage do you think part of that hope that the international community will get involved? is connected to our current elections here in America. You know why I'm asking because Trump because Trump has a very he he's not somebody that has a disciplined anything, but especially a disciplined state department. And I and I don't think and I and I think that's just objectively true. With that in mind, do you think somebody like a, a President Biden would galvanize the international community in the ways that Trump wouldn't or it hasn't i can only hope <laughs> i don't know but i can only hope i think whoever it be i think it would be better than trump <laughs> honestly i don't know i mean better in the way that i think they would do that the future one would do at least a bit more than trump does in this situation <laughs> so that's why i really hope that um elections will pass good <laughs> and uh, the, the someone will come and someone will think that oh my god i'm also a member of us um, um in this group i have to do something as well so i really hope that will happen because um we don't see anything uh, right now uh, going on from from usa right right so locally what have people heard from the russian side about this yeah, you know, it's not that Russia does something already. I mean, yeah. okay, they organized, they tried to organize this meeting of uh, ministers of foreign affairs, and they decided, came up with this ceasefire, so-called ceasefire, and it didn't work, it didn't even last five minutes, you know, it, it, at 12 o'clock it was supposed to be a ceasefire, and in 12.05 they started to bomb again, so I, that's why I don't think Russia is doing anything, and people don't even know what to think mm, many people think that like outside of armenia and azerbaijan i mean even in azerbaijan people think that russia is supporting armenia oh my god like it's the same way that turkey supports us but it's not true um we don't really see you know russia as everyone else makes statements these stupid statements honestly stupid because nobody cares about them we call on both sides to blah 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 we peace the only way blah blah come on 
who cares about your statements? I mean, they also make this statement in France does, and USA does, and UN does, EU that everyone does. But nobody is really taking any serious actions to stop it. Everybody is just looking like this and, yeah, that's bad. Because it doesn't work. If you want to stop it, you have to make really strict actions and have to follow these strict actions, not just say and go. So that's why I um, maybe in in the past it made any sense to speak about Russia separately, but now it doesn't make any sense because they are behaving like everyone else. Um, I still hope they will do something more. I mean, because they are partners of Armenia and many, many other stuff and so on. I hope, but I don't see any anything special, you know, going on. Right, because it's interesting what we get in our national media, generally in the explainer conversations, it talks about Russia's, uh, quote unquote, the, the close economic ties with Armenia, um, as well as Azerbaijan, and the fact that according to Politico, uh, Russia supplies weapons to both, and Russia's relationship is deeper, again, according to Politico, in that uh, it hosts uh, a Russian military base in this part of the Moscow-led Eurasia Economic Union. Um, but you're pretty much saying that's not really amounting to anything in the grand scheme of things. What do analysts and media get wrong about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict? And what are the main takeaways that we should know about the region so that we could better educate everybody else? About Nagorno-Karabakh, I think what people get wrong is that it has something to do with Azerbaijan <laughs> because it has something to do with Azerbaijan only on the way, in the way that, <laughs> that it, it shows in Google Maps. So please, people, just forget about it. And for more than 30 years, it's an independent, okay, not recognized, but it's an independent place. Just say it, say mark it like not recognized country or, um, I don't know, this beautiful country or place area, but not call it Azerbaijan um, because it's not simply it's not. If it were, if it was, I wouldn't say anything, but it's not. Uh, and um, I think uh, people have to, if, if if someone is interested in Karabakh, uh, please just um, just read the history of Karabakh and before, like, and you will see that it's. It's really an Armenian land, and what is the most important? Don't look um, at Karabakh as a as a piece of land. Karabakh is not um, like this square kilometers. It's Karabakh is people. Uh, try to find out people who live here, what they want. Stop uh, hearing listening to Azerbaijani or Turkish propaganda, or don't even um, uh, listen to, like, Armenian, okay, don't even listen to Karabakhian people. Listen what they say. Listen what they want. And uh, understand that it's, it's not about Armenia or something. It's about especially people of Nagorno-Karabakh who want peace, who want reunification with Armenia, but okay, that can still wait. We we are on our way for that. Still, we want independence, so nobody touches us, and we can live in peace. Like 
over 30 years we are rebuilding Karabakh. You know, after the first war, it was totally destroyed. Totally. They were bombing with Grad, you know, Grad. No, tell me, I don't. It's a um, type of weapon uh, which they were bombing from Shushi. Shushi is here, and Stepanagat is here. Shushi is in a mountain. They were bombing with Grad to Stepanagat every, every day. And after that, this all 30 years, we were reconstructing Stepanagat and reconstructing the whole Artsakh, the whole Nagorno Karabakh. And they, they are bombing what we did all these 30 years. That's unfair. And um, if somebody cares, and I think somebody has to care because nobody knows what will happen to you and to your state and to your home tomorrow. Just go out and try to make your country do something against that. Try to make your country stop it and try to stop the disease of civilians simple civilians and even soldiers you know soldiers they are like 18 years of boys they are a part of the society they are not like um, uh, this i don't know uh, army special with i don't know which kind of oh, oh, man no they are 18 years old guys this the member of the same uh, society they want to leave you know in the list you see uh, like these guys uh, who are, were born in 2000 or 2001, 2002, uh, in those years, they are uh, already less and less in the list because they are finishing the whole one whole generation. They are being killed. They are being massacred by Azeris. So that's unfair. If somebody cares, just. Um, just try to do something and there was a question what role should the eu and america play in, in all this so if you if they want to stop this so the first step they have to do is recognizing nagorno karabakh republic so this is what they have to do now lika there are a couple of things that we need to do to support you individually you need a helmet and body arm <laughs> and, and body armor yes so we're going to figure out a way to support you and getting that so i'm pretty sure that there i saw some people out there trying to do that so we're going to get that i'm going to support um in those efforts to get that stuff to you because i don't i just want to reiterate the fact that you're in your home and your home is technically a war zone i want to thank you for your calm and your demeanor and telling us these very important stories and your passion for it because we need you out there to tell those stories but we need you to be safe as well so um i hope that you are doing i don't know some mental you're you're taking care of your mental health because after this conflict ends we're going to need you to be around as a whole person thank you so much <laughs> That's very nice of you. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking time to talk to us about Nagorno Karabakh and all of the implications. And we will continue to share your work online and to uh, keep you in our thoughts as you do continue to do this very important journalism. 
Thank you so much. That's a really big support because um, one of my aims is to raise awareness about Nagorno-Karabakh and what happens here. And as, as you maybe noticed, I'm not writing about political stuff, mostly I'm writing about people and their stories. What, what would be, I think, interesting for another simple civilian and simple people to read about the same way simple civilians as they are. Why have you focused on the human story as opposed to getting into the politics? Because a majority of journalists would be doing that. So there are so many people who write about it, like political, in, in a political like way. So that's why I decided, it's like, it wasn't like, oh, everyone does, I will do the opposite. It wasn't like this, but um, I, I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know if um, uh, one minute. Sorry, sorry, I was interrupted. My friend just showed me that tomorrow at eight o'clock there will be a, another ceasefire. So I don't really believe anymore. But still, so yeah, um, I studied political science, but more I also focused on conflict studies and peace work. So when you are writing human stories, it doesn't have to be like even an Azerbaijani person can read it and feel sorry or um, feel that there is another human being also there. But when you are writing a political this stuff, there are someone from opposite, they will just write a shitty comments on your uh, on your post. But uh, I want, like, uh, with my works, also someone from opposite side to read and understand that there are not um, someone like um, dragons here. They are the same simple civilians, the same people as they are. So maybe someone of them would feel sorry uh, also for the people in this side. Mm, that's why it's it's more peaceful and it's more. Um, it, I think sometimes it makes, um, I don't want to say more sense, but sometimes it, sometimes it touches people. So sometimes people think about it. When you read the political stuff, you know that this country will say this, that country will say that, that's politics. But when you know what, not only what happened, but how this thing, what happened, affected on people, um, how this de or that decision affected on people, that makes more sense, I guess. I don't know, for me, I feel this way. That's why um, it's easier for me to to write about people. No, absolutely, I hear you. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and please be safe. We will be watching closely uh, your work and also checking in on you. We, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Black Diplomats. We appreciate the support. Please go to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and rate us with a five-star review. And go to our Patreon page where you can find us under Black Diplomats and donate to our show. We're eager to grow the podcast and give you even more episodes, but we need your support. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr, signing off.